Section 30 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15, The Deposed Emperor, Part 2. The guilty nobles shut themselves in the two castles of Scala and Capaccio and spread the report that Frederick was dead, which caused a rising among the populace. The arrival of the emperor on the scene quickly produced order, and the traitors were besieged. The castle of Scala made a short resistance, that of Capaccio held out for three months. Some of the captives, before they died, confessed that the pope had instigated them in their treacherous designs on Frederick's life. The vengeance of Frederick was fearful enough. The plotters were blinded, disfigured, and maimed. He had a mind to send them in this wretched state round the courts of Europe as a forcible testimony of the Pope's murderous plans and of the retribution which all those should find who sought to wash their hands in the blood of the transgressor. But he desisted from this drastic step, and the victims were put out of their misery by being broken on the wheel. Their fate seems barbarous to the mind of a more gentle age, but we can judge from the friar Salimbene that it seemed only just in those times. The princes of the kingdom, he writes, whom Frederick had raised from nothing and had exalted from the dust, lifted their heels against him. They kept no faith with him but betrayed him. There was no wisdom in those who thought themselves wise. I knew them. They suddenly vanished from the world and for the most part made a wretched end of their lives because they walked after vanity. The Pope, whether truly or falsely, denied all complicity in this plot and accused Frederick in turn of designs upon his own life. Two murderers, it was said, were sent by the Emperor to the Roman court for the purpose of killing the Pope by secret treachery. Their purpose was discovered, and they were cast into prison. There were some, however, who said that this report was cunningly invented and fraudulently arranged, in order that Frederick, who declared that it was by the Pope's contrivance that a similar occurrence had lately happened to him, might be defamed by a similar crime. Two other conspiracies were also detected against innocent in which Ghibellines were involved, but neither could be traced to the Emperor's instigation. It is improbable that he would resort to such means as this, for the assassination of the Pope by his orders would call down upon him the unanimous execration of Christendom, and all but the most fanatical or unscrupulous of his supporters would desert him in the struggle that must be taken up by Innocent's successor. In Germany, meanwhile, the Pope was strenuously endeavoring to destroy Frederick's power and fanning those flames of civil war which had blazed up after the emperor's second excommunication. Albert von Biham was his agent among the great of the land, the friars among the populace in the towns. A crusade was declared against the church's foe, and a papal bull forbade anyone to journey to the Holy Land and fight against the infidels when there was a more evil enemy of religion vexing the church at home. The result of the sentence of the Council of Lyon was to cause many of the prelates to desert the emperor, while the great princes, who had formerly lent an ear to the pope's beguilings, now returned to their loyalty. Otto of Bavaria, who had for some time dallied with the offer of the imperial crown, now refused it with uncompromising finality. 
he cast in his lot openly with the deposed Hohenstaufen by giving his daughter in marriage to King Conrad. The papal party cast around for another powerful prince to set up as King of the Germans, and subsequently as Emperor of Rome in Frederick's place. Some were too loyal, others too fearful of endeavouring to supplant a sovereign whose name was still held in awe. The papal offers were rejected with contempt by the King of Bohemia, the Dukes of Austria, Brabant, and Saxony, the Margraves of Meissen and Brandenburg. Finally, Henry Raspa, the Landgrave of Thuringia, yielded to the persuasions and commands of Innocent. I will be crowned emperor, he said, but I shall not live a year. Innocent threw all his energies into the task of furthering the cause of his puppet. A stream of English gold flowed from Lyon to Germany and was there distributed with a lavish hand. The princes and prelates of the empire were bidden to elect Henry as king. The princes scorned to obey, but the prelates were no longer loyal to their Kaiser. The archbishops of Mentz, Cologne, Treves, and Bremen, the bishops of Metz, Spiers, and Strasbourg, gathered together on May the 22nd and chose Henry of Thuringia as king and emperor-elect. Such an election could not be valid, and the partisans of Frederick scoffed at Henry as the priest's king. But a powerful army assembled under his leadership and defeated Conrad in a great battle near Frankfurt. His triumph was short-lived. The towns would nowhere submit to him, and in a few months Conrad had assembled another force of 15,000 men. The papal champion and the son of Frederick met again in a bloody battle near the town of Ulm, and the imperialists gained a decisive victory. Henry fled to his home in Thuringia and died on February 17, 1247, nine months after his election. The papalists then endeavored to seduce Conrad from his allegiance to the emperor. It was not the first time that the vicars of Christ had incited the son to rise against the father but Conrad rejected their efforts with scorn. Innocent invited the King of Norway and the King of Denmark to fill Henry's place, but neither would accept the perilous honor. It was at last accepted by William Count of Holland, an ambitious youth of twenty years of age. He was elected King of the Romans by three archbishops and a few bishops and princes on Christmas Day, 1247. There remained still to crown him, he advanced to Aix-la-Chapelle, but the burghers of the imperial city of Charlemagne shut their gates against the usurper. For six months they endured a siege, until their provisions had failed and the walls were crumbling to pieces. They lost heart when the false report was spread that their Hohenstaufen Kaiser was dead, and yielded upon fair conditions. William of Holland was crowned by the papal legate in the ancient church which thirty-two years before had witnessed the coronation of Frederick. The star of the house of Hohenstaufens had already begun to set, and from henceforth Conrad slowly but surely lost ground. A blight seemed to settle upon Germany. The partisans of Innocent and Frederick were unceasingly at strife. Three of her great princes, the Duke of Austria, the Landgrave of Thuringia, and the Duke of Moran died without male issue, and their relations fought wildly among themselves for the succession. Every house seemed to be divided against itself. The old policy of the popes to weaken the power of the emperors 
by fostering internecine strife in their dominions, was yielding a rich harvest of discord and desolation. Frederick, meanwhile, after having crushed the conspiracy of the nobles of Sicily, was taking a few months of rest in his kingdom before setting forth on the final stage of the great struggle. The future might seem hopeless enough to him. With the half of Germany arrayed against his cause, with the resources of his kingdom strained to their utmost in the maintenance of his armies, the task of re-establishing his authority in every corner of his vast dominions was beyond his power. Against him was arrayed many forces, the fanaticism inspired by a blind and unquestioning belief in the infallibility of the Pope, through which he himself must be regarded as the accursed enemy of God and the Church, the more timid fear of the devout, which rendered them unwilling to serve a master when thereby they invoked upon themselves the condemnation and anathema of the Pope, the cupidity of baser men, whose loyalty was no proof against the allurement of the papal gold, the self-interest of others who hoped to profit by anarchy and confusion to extend their own authority and possessions. In his own support he could count only personal devotion, unswerving loyalty, and the same emotion which inspired himself, the passionate detestation of priestly tyranny. It is wonderful enough that in an age of superstition and credulity, so many could be found ready to imperil their souls in his service. The very nature of the warfare in which he was involved rendered a speedy culmination impossible unless he himself should be crushed into the dust or released from his burden by death. His enemies in northern Italy would never give him the opportunity to overthrow their power in one decisive battle. His more awful adversary could never be brought to submission. Frederick might overrun the papal territories, might destroy a few Lombard towns, but Innocent would still sit at Lyon, unassailable, unrelenting, and unsubdued. The tribute of Christendom would continue to flow into his coffers, would be employed to support mercenary armies, to encourage and fortify the old enemies of the emperor, to raise up new champions of the church. Yet to Frederick, though he realized the hopelessness of his cause and the weary road he must travel for the remainder of his years, there came no thought of abandoning the struggle. He was seized instead with an irresolution almost inevitable, for he knew not against which of his many foes to direct his arms. If he gathered all his might together and advanced upon Milan, bent upon utterly destroying this most aggressive of his Lombard enemies, he must prepare for a siege of many months' duration, and meanwhile his other adversaries would profit by his preoccupation to invade his own territories or to attack the loyal Ghibelline states in their neighborhood. If he entered Germany to assist his son Conrad in the war against the papal intruder, then the rebels in northern Italy would redouble their energies, relieved from the menace of his proximity. There seemed only one course, and that a desperate one, by which Frederick might strike a decisive blow. He might march to Lyon at the head of his armies, appear in person before the face of his arch-enemy, and either wrest justice from him by force, or lead him back a captive into his kingdom. Such a course would be dramatic and impressive, but it would be attended by grave dangers. It might incur the national resentment of France, 
for Lyon, though nominally an imperial city, was French in the sentiments of patriotic Frenchmen. There were many in Christendom, moreover, who, though they might deprecate the harshness and ambition of Innocent, would yet be aroused to active sympathy if he suffered the personal indignity of compulsion or captivity. Frederick nevertheless decided to march to Lyon. He advanced northwards to Turin in May 1247 with stores of treasure and many thousand knights. He declared that he would bring his cause before the Pope and before the world. He talked of appearing in Germany with the Pope in his train. Innocent cried to France for succor, and his appeal was answered. Louis had befriended the emperor in some measure, but he was too pious to be his friend in all things. The actions of Innocent might be subject to condemnation and reproof. But the person of the vicar of Christ must remain inviolate. The French king offered to lead his chivalry to Lyon when the pope should need his protection. Frederick still persisted in his design. He made a compact with the Count of Savoie, which ensured him an undisputed crossing of the Alpine passes. Further to the west, the Count of Vienne promised to aid him to the utmost of his power. He appointed Chambéry as the meeting place between himself and his transalpine subjects and allies. It seemed probable that the strife would become international that the armies of France would meet the armies of the emperor before the city of Lyon. But the Pope had other weapons to wield. He had many friends among the great Guelphic houses of Italy, and not a few in the imperialist town of Parma. Some of these had been lately expelled by the emperor for plotting against his life. With the influence of the Pope added to their persuasions, they succeeded in gaining the connivance of their friends inside the walls to their plans. They appeared before Parma with a strong force of mercenaries hired by the gold of Innocent. The imperial captain sallied forth to give them battle, was defeated and slain. The victorious exiles found the gates open to them, took possession of the citadel, won the enthusiasm of the fickle populace, and Parma was no longer an imperialist city. End of section 30